The Your Mark on the World show is made possible by our sponsors, including Gate Global Impact and Curtin McConkie. Welcome to Your Mark on the World, bringing you another changemaker with champion of social good, Devin D. Thorpe. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Your Mark on the World show. I'm your host, Devin Thorpe, and our guest today is our new sponsor from Curtin and McConkie, Brenda Andrews. And Brent, welcome to the show. We're thrilled to have you. Thanks, Devin. Happy to be here. We're, we're especially grateful for your sponsorship, the support of the show. We couldn't do it without you and really appreciate you uh, helping us in that way. You've got some great tips. Uh, you've been working with nonprofits throughout your career. And, and it, I think with you, as I, I've gotten to know you, uh, this isn't just uh, uh, what you do professionally. This is really your passion, helping nonprofits. And you've, uh, having been around the block a number of times, you've identified some uh, tips, some pitfalls to a, avoid, perhaps. And, and let's talk about these. The, the first that you raised is the idea of being cautious about conflicts of interest, uh, Tell me a little bit about what you mean when you say that based on your experience. Well, the, as we talked about what are some of the things that in the nonprofit space we see, that was what came to mind first because we see that so frequently. And it can be just little things. Uh, and often there are things that are good for the charity. For instance, somebody says, I'd like to rent some space to the charitable organization. I'm on the board. I'm going to give them a below market rate of, of rent. And I often hear comments like, oh, well, we can't have any transactions between the organization and a board member. Well, that's, that's not true. And yet at the same time, just willy nilly enter, entering into transactions is not a good idea either. So we see that we're also seeing increasingly uh, in the, in things like impact investing, or there's uh, all sorts of areas where people who are out doing good through maybe some kind of a for-profit enterprise are saying, we could really do more by partnering with the charity, creating our own charity. And so now suddenly we're seeing potential transactions between a for-profit enterprise and a charitable organization. Sometimes there are people on those boards, sometimes uh, you've got the entity itself creating the related charitable organization, all of which is fine, but the IRS has a very well-defined set of rules, as well as the nonprofit uh, corporation statutes of most states set forth a set of conflict of interest rules that have to be adhered to. Well, it really is, uh, I think, a, a minefield that people need to be cautious about. Uh, and I, I can see how nonprofits make mistakes on both sides of that coin. One uh, cavalierly entering into transactions where there are apparent conflicts of interest without running them by counsel, without being thoughtful, without uh, recusing board members who have the, the conflict. Uh, and on the other hand, you can see how uh, nonprofits might avoid transactions where there are conflicts where the, 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 there's a huge benefit to the organization that's being right. bypassed and, and that's being bypassed out of fear of, a, uh, of people complaining about a conflict. And the, the conflict of interest, I guess it's important to step back here 
and just clarify, a conflict of interest doesn't mean per se you can't do a transaction, right? Correct. That's it absolutely means, right. What does it mean? What does it mean that there's a conflict of interest? D describe that, that legal standard of what it is. So ordinarily, we're looking at a conflict that involves either one of two things. It could be a financial interest. So a board member or a related family member or a for-profit enterprise in which that board member or an officer has a uh, financial interest. It could also simply be uh, another type of an interest. Sometimes you have people who serve on two boards of two nonprofits even, but there, and so you run into, if those two nonprofits even are doing something together, there would be conflicting duties that that particular board member owes to each entity if they're transacting business. But more often than not, we're concerned about those financial interests. And identifying that there is, in fact, a conflict is really the first step. It's the first requirement towards dealing with the conflict of interest in an appropriate manner as well. So, so the key, I just want to reiterate, because I think it's so important, the key to begin is to identify, disclose, define the conflict, right? That's correct. Okay, then once you've defined that conflict, then with the help of counsel or a wise board, you can figure out what the protocol is for dealing with that conflict and answering the question, right? Absolutely. And you mentioned a minute ago recusals. That's the primary. Once the conflict is identified, the member who has the conflict usually is asked to, they're actually entitled or allowed to describe what the transaction is from their perspective, but we often then ask them to not just recuse themselves from the voting, but maybe even to step outside of the room and let the rest of the board who does not have a conflict describe or discuss the transaction. And then once the disinterested, is what we usually call them, disinterested board members have vetted that, determined whether or not they need to do some comparability analysis, see whether or not other options are available that are either better or equal to the offer from the conflicted board member. Then we um, have the disinterested board members vote on that. And all of that we recommend be documented in the record of the organization. It's amazing to me, one, how easy it is to deal with these issues. Because again, that's not that complicated of a process. You just have to follow a process. And once you do that and document it, if the IRS comes back later and wants to audit the organization and it flags a transaction, having gone through that process, frankly, just from a practical standpoint, an IRS agent who has that process described to him or her is much more likely to merely pass over the, that particular issue and say, okay, thank you, you did it right, let's move on. If they have concerns about it, under applicable IRS rules, you would end up being entitled to a presumption. The organization would be entitled to a presumption that there is a, that the transaction was in fact reasonable. So there's some real advantages to following through that process, uh, both from a practical standpoint as well as if it ever were to go into an actual dispute with the IRS. Uh, in that case, that process gives you the presumption that what was done was appropriate which means IRS has a burden to, to prove otherwise. Well, listen, let's move on. I, we, we could spend our whole time on, on just being mindful about conflicts of interest, and maybe we need to 
do a show where we just talk about that. But let's talk about your tip number two, which is to know when you need to register for fundraising in a state. Uh, you know, this is something that uh, I'm sure there are tr a lot of violations in this space, in this new world of crowdfunding and internet fundraising. There have got to be a lot of people who are fundraising outside of their home state, uh, maybe for the first time, and don't realize they may have an obligation to to register uh, for fundraising outside the state. Tell us a little bit about this pitfall. We are seeing a growing concern about this because compliance is actually, there's, there's quite a burden. We have a handful of clients that we do their charitable solicitation registration in all 50 states. Well, frankly, it's only 40 states in the District of Columbia that actually regulate solicitation of charitable contributions. But still, 40, 40 is a lot. And People don't realize that when they do ask money, even from prior donors, if you send some kind of a mailing out to them, whether it's an email or a text message, or if you're going back to the dark, you know, the dark ages, sending out uh, mailers, written mailers by mail, uh, that is a solicitation. And a single ask of a single person is, in fact, usually a violation of the law if you're not pre-registered and approved to do that. Now, registering isn't uh, isn't an inordinate burden, but registering forty times is is an administrative process. What what is required in most states to register? Well, so most states have at a minimum an application form for uh, in in the state of Utah, for instance, the Division of Consumer Protection issues a charitable solicitation permit. Many states have a similar process. They they provide a permit. Others, it's just merely they want to see you register. They don't issue a permit of any kind, but there's a very similar application that asks for information about the organization. They ask for copies of articles of incorporation. It's In some respects, it's similar to the application for tax-exempt status with the IRS if you're a charity. And uh, in, in recognition of the fact that it is fairly onerous and burdensome, the states did get together a few years ago, and there was an attempt to bring some kind of uniformity to the process. And the unified registration statement was born of that process. 36, I believe, states out of the 40 accept that unified registration statement, which is a single application. About 10 or 11 have a supplement to that. So for instance, the state of Utah allows that form but then they have a four-page document that you're supposed to submit as a supplement to that unified form. So it, it, there, there was an attempt to try and make it a little bit more streamlined, but even with that single document that is accepted in most places, you have to submit that to the various state officials uh, if you are soliciting in all of those states. Now, especially in a crowdfunding world, uh, that seems to me there are a lot of people who are who must be violating this rule. Small nonprofits probably are registered only in their own state, and yet when they do some sort of a crowdfunding campaign, uh, there must be money coming in across state lines. And sure. uh, what what are the penalties? What do the, what does a nonprofit risk? if they're taking money across a state line into a state where they should be registered and aren't? Well, let me give you some good news first, Devin, and that is that a few years back, the state 
officials who govern charitable solicitations got together and came and they got together in Charleston, West Virginia and came up with what is now called the Charleston principle, which basically is that if all you do is maintain a web presence that allows you to take donations in from across state lines, that in and of itself is not a violation of the charitable solicitation rules. So for instance, maintaining a crowdfunding program or, or um, uh, fundraise is not going to be a violation unless you're shooting a whole bunch of information out to people in those states. If you're out sending emails, but just sit, having a website and maybe a whole bunch of your supporters say, hey, spread the word. Uh, your mark on the world is doing a crowdfund. Please give. If people come to that website voluntarily and give, that is not usually a violation of the charitable solicitation rules. So um, that's kind of the good news. The, the, the bad news, you asked what are the violations. Again, it varies from state to state, but most of the time, a violation of these rules is a misdemeanor. It's a criminal offense and usually carries with it some kind of a fine usually between a thousand or two thousand dollars and the frustrating thing is it is per violation so for instance if i send out if actually if i go to the state of nevada as a charity charity official for an organization and i hold an event with 50 people and say we'd love to have you give to our cause and i've not registered under nevada law that's 50 violations not one even though it was a single event and maybe a single ask, the states usually view that as each person you, you make that ask to is a separate ask. Now, the good news, again, I'll tell you, is most state officials recognize the fact that charities often innocently violate this. Many are not even aware of this requirement. And if they discover that you violated their law, they usually send out a warning saying, we understand you you showed up in Nevada and held this event. We remind you of this law. Please don't do this again, or we will have to penalize you. So the good news is if you find out, if this is the first you're hearing of this, you can get compliant and chances are you're never going to face any actual penalties because they only usually punish really significant violators. Well, that is uh, somewhat reassuring, but clearly there is a, a bit of a quagmire here that uh, nonprofits want to avoid. Let's move on to your next point, which is a somewhat broader point related to this one, and that is that nonprofits need to be generally careful about regulation because being a nonprofit subjects them to more regulation, not less. It doesn't exempt them, which I think some nonprofits some young, early, small nonprofits have the sense that their charitable mission somehow exempts them from oversight. What's the reality? The reality is, as you just described, exactly the opposite. I tell anyone who comes to meet with me who wants to start a charitable organization, that's great, happy to help, love the cause that you're trying to advance. However, you need to understand you are, in fact, going into a regulated industry. The primary regulators are the uh, federal government in the form of the IRS, because once you are becoming a charitable organization, frankly, any organization exempt from tax, the IRS wants to make sure that, in fact, the 
privilege they give you of not paying income taxes, as well as if you are a charity, a 501c3, the privilege of receiving tax-deductible contributions, that in fact you merit those two benefits. And as a result, there's an annual filing requirement. In 2006, small charities usually were had a waiver. They did were not obligated to provide any kind of an annual return. That was done away in 2006. And so now every charity at least has to notify the IRS that they are still in existence, giving the IRS the opportunity to come and audit you or otherwise follow up on the fact that you're out there functioning as a charitable organization. So that's number one. The other is that we just talked about charitable solicitation. State attorneys general have general oversight over charitable organizations generally. Then the thing that I see more frequently is that charities, because they are exempt from income taxes, for instance, they start assuming that they're exempt in a variety of other areas, exempt from employment taxes, and, and, and you're not, <laughs> exempt from state property taxes. And unless your property that you own is used for charitable purposes, holding some investment property that some donor gave you does not exempt that property from property tax. Likewise, there's all sorts of other rules, the FLSA, that apply to charitable organizations no differently than they would to for-profit enterprises. And so again, you get that other the additional overlay of the IRS, but you have all these other general laws and rules that apply uh, even if you are in fact a charity. It sounds so scary to be a nonprofit uh, that it, I'm afraid we may discourage some from from becoming a nonprofit. What, how do people manage this on the limited budgets, the constrained budgets that all nonprofits face? How do they handle it? Well, how some handle it is interesting. There are lots of great organizations out there whose sole mission and purpose is to help charities, large and small, accomplish their objectives. Here locally, we have the Utah Nonprofits Association. We have a great community foundation in Utah. There are lots of resources. And what I see a lot of charities is the collaboration with other charitable organizations that helps them navigate these rules. It's not a bad idea to have legal counsel. And I think the approach I've tried to take, because lawyers are expensive and uh, we're no exception to that, is to try to manage the risks and issues that the charities have. If they come see me, usually for an initial consultation, it's, it's, it's free. Tell me what you're, what's keeping you up at night. What are your concerns if you're an existing charity? Let's talk through and let's figure out where you really do need some help. And more often than not, I find myself referring the work out because what they really need is to improve their accounting for what they're doing. And so I usually refer them to a good CPA who knows how to keep nonprofit records and books and do their nonprofit reporting. If there's some of these other issues, we try and look at a way in which to deal with the issue they have. If it's a conflict of interest transaction, deal with it in a cost effective manner. They don't need us at the board meeting, for instance, monitoring that whole process. But if we can help them understand that there is a process and what that process is, then again, that consultation on that, and maybe it includes helping them have a conflict of interest policy, which lays out the process that they can follow any time. Anyway, we try just to make sure that when they have needs, that we handle those needs in as cost-effective a manner. And I think that's been helpful. But there are good resources out there. 
uh, online as well as locally with local organizations. I think most states have some form of a nonprofit association that provides counsel and help to especially the smaller organizations who can't afford you know, regular counsel. Fantastic. Well, <clears throat> this is great insight. Now, I, I want to just take a few minutes with you on a couple of personal uh, ideas here. You clearly are a role model to many. You serve on boards. You, you're an accomplished a, a, attorney. Who do you look up to? Who's your role model? Who's my role model? That's a great question. And, you know, the thing that is, you mentioned earlier that I have a passion for this area, and, and I really do. And so some of the people I've looked up to the most have been some of my clients, people who develop a passion for an idea and then go and run with it. Oftentimes, because in the nonprofit space, those who are operating there know salaries aren't as high. And so really, um, I, I can give you an example. Um, and sometimes, actually, these people who come in are, are philanthropists. I love to see the entrepreneurs who, who, now that they've done really well in business, their passion becomes doing good in the world. And actually, I just saw one of the articles you have at your mark on the world on the other side academy joseph granny and folks they they're they're a client we're doing some work so when i met with them and heard what they were trying to accomplish to me i so admire people who don't just accumulate wealth and turn around and go buy a whole bunch of fancy cars or properties or spend it all on themselves but really find a passion for going out and doing good and and i admire those people who could go do just spend their time on a beach somewhere sipping pina coladas, which some days does seem like a very good idea, but they don't do that. They go take their passion uh, for doing good and put their money, time, and resources towards doing that. So, well, that's brilliant. Uh, next question. In, in the practice of law, there are some niches that pay better than others, and clearly, taking care of nonprofits is not the highest profitability path. Why have you pursued that? Well, I think the, the biggest reason is because I believe uh, I've always had a passion for what I call sometimes politics, but it really isn't politics. I don't necessarily love politics, but I do love good public policy. It's, it's been a passion of mine since I was a kid. It's what led me to law, actually. And what I've discovered over my life is the people who are really helping fix things in the world, governments have a cert, have, certainly have a role, uh, don't get me wrong, but the people who make true impact, I've discovered, are the people behind good nonprofits. They have passion. They understand the need to live on a budget and live on tight budgets. And it's their passion and their ability to bring people, volunteers to do whatever it might be, whether it's serving at the road home or doing other things. They're the ones who, in my opinion, tend to get things done. And so it's just been easy for me to get behind the nonprofit world uh, because of that. And fortunately, I had a great professor in law school who I thought I wanted to be a litigator, she told me she felt my personality was would would um, mesh well with nonprofits. And so very strangely, she encouraged me to take a nonprofit class in law school. And I remember just telling her, 
I want to be a litigator. She goes, I know, just take this class. And as they say, kind of the rest is history. Now, that's great. Now, one last question before you go, Brent, tell us, give us, based on your success, your ability to accomplish and do so much, give us a lot, an impact hack, something we can all do that would allow us to have more impact. Well, and I hope it doesn't sound trite, but I I really do believe that the basic golden rule, treat others as you would like to be treated, is really what I've tried to do. And, you know, in a professional organization, in in the field of law, there's all sorts of hierarchies. There's hierarchies in business. You've got partners and then associates, and then you've got staff people. And what I've tried to do, and what I think is, if I've had any success, I I do believe that it's attributable to this. I just try to treat everybody the same. I don't care whether you're the guy who just works part-time in the mailroom, or if you're the senior partner at the firm. I believe everybody's deserves the same level of respect, and especially to treat people kindly. Things go wrong sometimes. The guy in the mailroom may screw something up. But I don't have to demean them or treat them as less uh, just because of those things. So I've just tried to treat people nicely. That is a great, great tip. You know, I need to remember that more. Uh, Thank you. Thank you. Now, Brent, before you go, how do people get in touch with you? Uh, If they need, if they want to learn more, they want that free consultation, they need a good attorney. How do they get in touch? The best way probably is via email. And uh, my email address is my first initial and the last name. So bandrewson at kmclaw.com. Fantastic. Well, Brent, thank you very much for joining us. We're we're thrilled to have you. We appreciate your support and uh, look forward to having you back in the future. Thanks, Devin. Appreciate all you do. All righty. Let's do some good. Talk to you later. At the intersection of financial services and social media, Gate Global Impact, GGI, uses new market infrastructure to facilitate investments in organizations that deliver a societal, environmental, and or a cause-related benefit in addition to a financial return. Regardless of company size or business challenge, clients count on Curtin McConkie to solve problems, help realize opportunities, and provide high-caliber legal and business thinking without breaking their legal budgets. Thank you for listening. This podcast was recorded via Google Hangouts on Air and is available at youtube.com forward slash Devonthorpe. Subscribe to this podcast on Stitcher or iTunes by searching for Your Mark on the World. Every weekday, Devon hosts a CEO, celebrity, entrepreneur or other changemaker here on the Your Mark on the World show to inspire and prepare you to make your mark. Devon is a champion of social good, writing about, advocating for and advising people who are doing good. He is a Forbes contributor who is a recognized thought leader in social entrepreneurship, impact investing, and crowdfunding. To book Devin as a speaker, visit devinthorpe.com. Learn more about Devin's work at yourmarkontheworld.com.